Before the show starts, I'd just like to apologise for the sound quality on this one. I don't know if it's because we're approaching Halloween and we've got a bit of poltergeist activity or what, but there's an echo effect whenever I speak. Um, it's very curious. There's an echo before I speak on my brother's audio, and after I finish speaking, all very odd. I've managed to trim out as much as I can, but there's quite a bit left. Do apologise. Um, as I say, I'm blaming it on the spirits. Um, so, yeah. Sorry. Here they come! Hello and welcome to episode 95 of Effectively Speaking, the podcast that takes a look at some of the special effects sequences of film and television, be they classic, average or duff, or in this case, very strange. Yes, happy Halloween everyone. Today's episode should be out on Halloween and I thought to mark that my brother and I would look at the effects of a horror film that made a great lasting impression on us when we were younger. So... Come with us as we climb aboard the Horror Express. What if one of you is the monster? Monster? They're British, you know. <laughs> Here we go. Are you ready to take a train ride back to the 70s, Kevin? Let's do it, bro. You answered that like I'd never asked you that question before. I'll put my effectively speaking technical support hat on and say we'll be fine this time. Yeah, we are having technical difficulties at the moment. Um, I don't know what's going on. I, maybe it's a Saturday morning thing. I don't know. But uh, yeah, all right. Well, we're going back to the 70s. We're going back to that time where you and I would um, stumble across fil films or look in the, you know, the newspaper and see, you know, in the evening there's a film with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. And it's like, oh, so we will watch that. And uh, we would watch it invariably upstairs on our little black and white portable and uh, yeah, uh, as I was saying at the first attempt of, at recording this, you know, if it was a Hammer film, you kind of knew what you were going to get. But uh, this is an odd film because it was a European horror film, which I don't think you and I had ever had any exposure to European horror when we first watched this. No, I, th I think my earliest memory is automatically assuming it was Hammer, but it was like Hammer meets a spaghetti western. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, that um, a lot of people think, oh yeah, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, that's a Hammer film. But of course, they, they teamed up for Amicus films. Um, you know, you, you had all these other different, you know, British horror companies making horror films, you know, in the, in the early 70s. And also in Europe, you had a whole lot of horror films. And we'll talk about it in behind the scenes. This one has the distinction of um, importing Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing for it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and when you consider the, the tiny budget it was made on, to have names like those two and Telly Savalas was uh, quite a coup at the time. It was a coup. And I do wonder, I mean, I mean, the film has got a uh, an appeal as it stands at itself, but I don't know if it would as, as, be as well known if it didn't have Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing in it. I think you're right. I, I'm not sure the film would have been that much weaker for their absence, because this very much is a film 
that relies on, on the plot and what a plot it is. We'll be talking about that as we go along. I mean, yeah, it, it, is, it, is, it is an odd film. Um, and it, it, it's a very impactful film. When you've watched it once, you, you don't really forget it. And, you know, when we were teenagers, I can't remember if we did watch it in black and white originally. I've got a feeling we did. Um, it stays with you, doesn't it? It does. And um, I guess for, for context for this, when after, after my debut on Effectively Speaking, when we covered Puff and stuff, we were going to do another TV show. And then we had a chat about let's do something horror October, etc., etc., and this film, when you're given a choice of any horror movie of all time, and this is the film that came to my mind. It's stuck with me all those years. Yeah, it's just something about it. It it's like a um, smorgasbord, isn't it? It, it? It's like a big stew. You've got you've got Peter Cushing, you've got Christopher Lee, you've got Telly Savalas, you've got like you know, it's a horror film. The the, the score is amazing. The creature design is amazing. The, the 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 special effects on the eyes is amazing. You know, and it's a real oddity of a film. And for that reason, it is memorable. Yeah, I, th I think the two things that really stand out for me with this, first of all, it's it's one of those rare films where the, the plot never seems to lull. You know, normally with a film, you'll have 5, 10, 15 minutes where you get to catch your breath back. But it just doesn't happen in this film. And how it can step from a British Empire movie into a monster movie, into an alien movie, into a zombie movie, is just fascinating. And a Cossack movie, and a Rasputin <laughs> movie, you know. And another thing we haven't really mentioned is, you know, it's quite blatantly dubbed in many cases, but that just adds to the appeal of it as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and I was thinking last night, when you, when you look at the, the core plot of this movie, certainly kind of the monster segue part of it, it's, it's alien set on a train. Oh, no, it's another thing, but we'll talk about that shortly. Oh, yeah. All right, we'll talk about that shortly. All right, well, uh, we'll have a clip, and then we'll uh, start talking about it, okay? Great. What was in there? I told you, a fossil, part ape, part man. It lived two million years ago. Are you telling me that an ape that lived two million years ago got out of that crate, killed the baggage man and put him in there, then locked everything up neat and tidy and got away? Yes, I am. Okay, so... Christopher Lee's uh, Professor Saxton, he's found this fabulously icky frozen mummy of an ape creature and he's got it dug out, put in a crate and he's going to transport it back to England. That's how it starts, doesn't it? Yeah, um, and I think the film starts a little bit confused in that respect. I, I don't think their, their Chinese geography was all that good. The, uh, the, the walking into this cave that has this frozen thing in it, yet you notice no one seems to be breathing any misty air it seems quite warm in there actually mm. so i think there's an early indication between that and the the very opening titles with the with the train set um that this isn't yeah. the biggest budget of movies and i also like the fact that the caption at the very beginning says that it's peking and the first thing peter cushing says is uh, welcome to shanghai Absolutely, and the cave was in Sichuan, which is completely the opposite end of China and a damn sight nearer to Russia than, than Peking. Indeed. And I, I've got Indeed. to say, but bro, it, I, I don't know if it's the Blu-ray version of this, where I think on the, on the European theatrical release, the opening titles, it was just a black screen and you could hear the train going. Whereas uh, on the alternate version, you actually see the train pass by the camera during the opening titles. Yeah, that's on the Blu-ray, isn't it? 
that's it and it's worth watching because as the train goes from right to left just as it passes center look at the shadow on the ground and i swear you see someone pull their hand away you see the shadow of their hand to really just point out that this is really a very small train set and this isn't the last time you're going to see it i i have not noticed that hand when we finish recording i'm gonna go and have to have a look yeah. at that okay all right, so we've got Christopher Lee. He's at the Peking or Shanghai Railway Station and uh, ready to set off. And that's when he bumps into Peter Cushing and his assistant, Miss Jones, who I immediately think of as being Miss Jones from Rising Damp. But there you go. That says more about your obsession with uh, Fra Francis de la Tour than anything else. <laughs> yes, yes. And the first sign that there's something up is we've got a thief who tries to break into the crate, looks inside, and then is shortly later found dead with blank white eyes. Yeah, brilliant. So very early on in the film, there's your first moment to go, hang on a minute, this isn't just your conventional slasher movie, monster movie. That The whole white eye thing piques the interest straight away, I think. And it is incredibly distinctive and quite disturbing as well, yeah, isn't it? absolutely, absolutely. And, and if you weren't sitting up and paying attention before, you certainly are at this point. But, but it's still feeling like the early steps of just a monster movie. Well, the train sets off and you've got Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and you've got, who's like Dr. Wells and you've got Miss Jones's assistant. You've got this Rasputin-style holy man. You've got a count and a countess. You've got an engineer. You've got an inspector and assorted glamorous extras who didn't seem to be there other than for set decoration. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and some interesting... Uh, uh, I think where they, they, they chose not to record sound as they filmed it and, and posted it there, there's one particular scene that stands out later in the film with all those extras when they're all demanding what to know what's going on and you can see how they've dubbed people shouting where actually judging by the back of their heads they're not shouting at all <laughs> oh uh, i love it i love it dearly but we're, we're shortly going to find out you know that this ape creature he's thawed out a bit and we're going to find out that it can absorb a person's memory and knowledge out through the person's eyes which in the process turns them white yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's and it's already absorbed the knowledge and memories of the thief, and so it now knows how to pick the lock on the crate. And at that point, that's when you get the porter come in, whistling a tune. That will become the fil film's theme, won't it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. That tune right the way through to the closing credits. I also love the bit where it picks the lock. I think the instinct is to go, it's a prehistoric monster. How would it know how to... Oh! Oh, it killed a thief. Yeah, we're, we're getting clues before the cast Absolutely. do, don't we? Yeah, so, um, yeah, and that's when it kills the porter. It's one red eye um switches on and starts glowing red and uh, he kills the porter and he's got the white eyes hasn't he with all the the blood tears as well which is another striking image yeah i i, I did wonder with the thief i'm pretty sure he, he there, there were no blood tears with him but no oh, there, there are, are because yeah when, yeah, yeah when they open up the crate 
and they expect to see the ape creature in there. He, he, he's oddly positioned, so his head is just at the window, isn't it? And, it? and he's fully lit, but you've got the blackness beyond, and he has got the red tears. Yeah, no, I was thinking of the thief uh, on the platform. Oh, the thief. Yeah. oh, the thief. No, 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 I was, I was talking about the Yeah, porter, I'm pretty sorry. sure he, he just had uh, the white face, the white eyes, probably to make the eyes stand out more. Well, he didn't have the blood because, you know, the inspector says, oh, you know, he's a notorious thief. And the guy says, well, how can he be? He's blind. Yeah. And that's when you see him on the floor. And he hasn't got the red eyes. And, and he does look like a dead blind yeah, man. Yeah, so I guess it was plot convenient to not have the blood at that point. Yes. You could say that they, that, that they didn't uh, have blood tears because he's laying flat on the ground and therefore the blood didn't come out of his eyes. <sighs> I'd agree if it wasn't a subsequent scene. Uh, and, and now we get into to the effects, I guess, for the first time, where one of the dead characters has the lines of blood that stream down from the eyes, the nose, the mouth. And one of the streams of blood you can see has got a large globule on it. And that globule is defying gravity, given he's lying down and it's not gone down the side <laughs> of his face. So I think, yeah. No, it's just congealed absolutely. quickly. That's it's not all latex it is. at all. No, 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 no. And, um, yeah, so this is it. This is the film now. The train is in motion, and the rest of the film, um, it's basically various people being picked off one by one, including the Cossack, Telly Savalas, uh, which is bizarre when the, the the film stops and the train stops and on gets Telly Savalas, um, as the others are trying to figure out what's going on and who's behind it before they too get bumped off. Yeah, and... and... I think that's that's a, a key stager in this where they could have just made this. When I compared it to Alien earlier, I'm thinking of, you know, uh, a fast-moving vehicle with this thing hanging around in the background, leaping out, killing someone and disappearing again. That feels like Alien, but you could have sat there and just thought this is going to be just this monster going at it until someone kills it. But the plot shift they've done on that allows it to go beyond that. And what I like about this film and, and which sets it apart from other films that could be similar is, is when they find that through the autopsy of that porter that uh, his brain is completely smooth, isn't it? You know, you've got... This is early 70s and horror films back then, you, you would have gratuitous shots of surgery being performed, usually by Peter Cushing doing it, and here we've got the soaring open of the head, which is what Peter Cushing did in a couple of the Frankenstein films, to reveal a completely smooth brain. And this is the scene that makes, that means that probably 10, 11 year old me saw this, and 51 year old me chose this for us to talk about because this is the scene that i've always remembered above all others that smooth brain and the explanation that that's all of the memories have been taken out that just really stuck in my head as a unique film moment it's a new it's a unique premise that all the grooves and wrinkles on the surface of the brain are the memory and knowledge of that person complete bunkum <laughs> of course but uh, uh, i love the way that uh, peter cushing delivers it because he always delivers everything with complete earnesty uh, doesn't he you, you, you know he sells it even though it's complete tosh what he's talking absolutely. about absolutely you ask him a question he answers it you just feel stupid for asking the question but they finally ki kill the creature they corner the creature they kill it um and you think that's the end of the film but of course it's moved its consciousness into the inspector who is slowly taken over by it yeah so here's the big 
shift. Um, I guess the biggest shift of the block overall, but certainly not the last surprise. And they take, again, I, I just said there, you have a good gratuitous scene of a bit of surgery. The next bit, when they do the autopsy on the creature, and you've got the eyeball scene, haven't you, with the needle in the eyeball? Yeah, this is head-scratching time, I think, at this point. Number one, why in an autopsy would you think to look at the fluid in an eye? No, number two, why wouldn't you shove that needle right in? Um, mm. <laughs> number three, uh, and this is where I do start to struggle with it, it's great that they see the image of the inspector, then we see drawings of dinosaurs. Oh, that's you've you've been reading my notes. They're not dinosaurs. They're they're from out of like a children's book, aren't they? Of dinosaurs. Uh, ah, okay, maybe. <laughs> yes. Um, and then, lastly, when they see the planet Earth, mm. how do they know that's Earth? Uh, especially, how does the monk know it's Earth? This is nineteen oh six. <laughs> and it's not exactly one of those pictures of the earth where you can clearly see the continents yet no, the monk looks at no. it and goes <gasps> so yeah struggled a bit with those bits I do like the idea that um, as Christopher Lee says you know this creature's its memory isn't stored in its brain but it's in its eyes it's you know everything is to do with eyes and yeah you're right um, when they look at, um, in the microscope of the slide of this fluid, the first thing they see is the inspector, because that's the last thing the creature saw before it was killed. Then Peter Cushing, quite, you know, <laughs> enthusiastically goes, a brontosaurus, a pterodactyl, as we're seeing drawings of a brontosaurus and a pterodactyl. And that's when, yeah, it shifts gear again, because then you see the Earth from space, and Christopher Lee deduces that the creature arrived millions of years ago in a spaceship and lived by entering the body and brain of creatures it encountered so um, as uh, as it needed to it would just switch from one body to another and this frozen ape that he discovered was the very last one it had um, inhabited before it got frozen yeah so brilliant we now go it's not a monster movie it's an alien movie adding in that, uh, that alien's been on our planet for a very very long time but then somewhat backward referencing that actually the physical creature might well have been the missing link that the professor thought it was at the beginning of the film and and and, and that's how the rest of the film goes one of the people on board the train is now uh the host for the creature you know and uh, and that's how the film plays out doesn't it yeah absolutely it becomes that uh it becomes a detective movie really at this point doesn't it it's like an agatha christie film now who is the murderer on this absolutely. train alien on the orient express mm. That's what I should have called this episode, yeah. So that's really it. I mean, that's it special effects-wise. Um, you've got lots of train model work as well towards the end. Um, and, and that's really it. Have you got anything else to say about the film itself? Um, the film itself, $300,000 budget. Um, once you take away the three actors and what they would have cost, it's no surprise, I guess, with the effects that were left but just that whole plot and you're going to talk about you know the source material for where the the central idea of this film comes from but mm. i think we really need to give kudos to the fact that given that that central idea was there how they took that and moved it onto a whole different level for this film it would be a different film if it had been made by, say, uh, Trigon or Amicus or Hammer. I think the fact that it was made in Spain with this 
a group of actors with the creative people behind it um, all adds to you know, making it a unique film. Yes, however, imagine if they did do a remake of this with a decent budget. Not a remake, imagine if it had been filmed now for the first time with a decent budget. No, it wouldn't be the same, would it? It wouldn't be the same. Because, you know, I mean, you, you, you know, I've said before on, on this show, and we were saying at the beginning, you know, part of the appeal is we watched it when we were young. We didn't know what on earth this was, and it's maybe the way we watched it, you know, late at night on a black and white portable. But, you know, I've seen, and it's on the Blu-ray as well, you know, you have uh, a great many uh, filmmakers who have seen the, seen the film relatively recently and are just, you know, very, very impressed by it. Uh, and that, certainly a... A significant part of that has got to be the plot premise. And the thing that gets to me is with the thousands of channels we've got for viewing now, the millions of films available to us, how often do we crave originality in a plot? And you certainly get that. This is something based on something else, but then brings an essence of originality that no one's been anywhere near since. Fantastic, fella. And, that, and, it, and, it, and that's... The exact reason why it doesn't need remaking, because it just wouldn't be the same. This is like a unique film, isn't it? True. I'd just like to see some of the effects a bit more uh, proportionate to the significance of the film. Oh, no, I like it. I, 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 I like the shoddiness of it. You know, I, I, I think that's one of the appeals. All right, well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about behind the scenes then. Um, now, I don't know how much you've looked into it, Kevin, but uh, um, this is what I've got. Um, the film was the brainchild of the director, Eugenio Martin, who had made a name for himself with a string of westerns in Spain, and he had just finished a film called Pancho Villa, which starred Telly Savalas, and it was part of a three-feature deal with producer Philip Jordan. Oh, sorry, Jordan. Did you know that? I uh, didn't know it was part of the three-feature. certainly knew of Pancho Villa. Yeah. Well, now, he was thinking, about what shall he do for his third film? And that's when he realised they still had the very large, very detailed train left over from Pancho Villa. So for cost reasons, the idea was formed to have a train set film. So that was, <laughs> that was the basis of it. I've got to make a film. I've got this train still. All right, we're going to have a film on a train. It's got to be the Simple only film in history that starts with, right, here's a set of a train. Let's build a movie around it. There you go. They, only, they had the model of the train and they only had two carriages. Okay, so what they did was while they were filming on one carriage, the other carriage was being prepared to resemble another carriage, and then they would film on that one. And then while they were doing that, the first one they would redress for the next one. So they, when you watch that film, there's only two carriages that they're continually, you, you know, resetting to be either the carriage compartment or the corridor or an interior or the restaurant room. You see, and when you know that. You wouldn't know that. When you're watching the film, you don't think, oh, they're, they're, they've only got two there. That's the one from before. They've done it very well. The set dressing on this is fabulous. This film. Yeah, uh, I think they're aided by the fact that the film is set over such a short span of time, so there's no costume changes needed. Um, but no. I can imagine the sequence with which they filmed the carriage scenes must have been quite... must have looked quite random to an outsider. Yeah. But it still looks fabulous. We didn't say, but you know, at the beginning of the film, when they're at Peking slash Shanghai railway station, that's actually uh, uh, a train station in Madrid, which they just, you know, done up 
with lots of you know background you know crates and and signage and stuff to resemble somewhere in China. Absolutely, the whole film's filmed in Madrid. So even those opening scenes of the mountains and when we've got um, Christopher Lee inside the cave, that's all in Madrid. Hence why his breath wasn't icicles. Yes, <laughs> he was in warm Madrid. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, the, the plot origin is shrouded in some mystery, mm. okay, um, and before they decided to make this film, the producer, Phil Jordan, he was buying up the rights to any short stories uh, that he could find cheaply enough, including a lot of horror and science fiction, okay, and uh, Eugenio says that he believed one of them involved an alien getting its energy by taking over humans, Okay. right? Now, that sounds a bit like John W. Campbell's Who Goes mm -hmm. There? you know, which was the basis for uh, The Thing. Yep. Okay. And and the final film is a lot like The Thing. You, you you know, you've got a creature found frozen in the ice for millions of years. It thaws out and it picks off a group of isolated people one by one who can't escape from it, you know, much like The Thing. Absorbing their memories, just like in The Thing. And, uh, and in the case of the inspector, imitating them as well. So you say alien, I say thing. Yeah, so... The central tenet is certainly the thing, but for them to then move that across to all those other plot themes. Zombies, my God, we get zombies in this film. <laughs> that is very true as well, yeah. But if it is the case, if, if one of the short stories that he bought up was Who Goes There, then Horror Express is the second film to be based on the story because you've got the thing from another world in the 1950s and, and not the popularly believed John Carpenter version to be the second one. John Carpenter's would then be the third one, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And from what I've looked at in the build-up to today, some, some sites will refer to this as the second. Um, some won't mention this film at all. All right. Well, whatever its origin, you know, the idea was turned into a script by Arno Dusso and Julian Halvey. And although, if you look at the credits, it states original story, Eugenio Martin, but that was solely because they needed another Spanish credit for quota reasons. So they just pung that in there because you needed another Spaniard. I wondered why his name was attributed to it. So thank you for that, bro. Um, Phil Jordan was living in London at the time and he had many producer buddies and that's how he secured Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, you know, as a friend of a friend of a friend who got them. Um, and Telly Savalas is in there because he had a two-featured deal with Phil Jordan. He had already done Pancho Villa and so, yeah, they, they roped him in for this one. That's why Telly Savalas is in there. Yeah, for, from, from what I was reading on it, uh, he couldn't believe his luck for, for such a small part. He got paid something like $22,000 which he used to, to to pay for the rent for his mistress's apartment in London, apparently. Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly, <laughs> yes, indeed. But, um, the, the, the filming commenced with that opening cave scene that you were talking about, the uh, no frosty breath cave scene. And the next day, Peter Cushing arrived. Um, and it's like, oh, hello, Peter, you ready, you ready? And he's like, no, I'm not going to make the film. Um, he, he had flown over to tell them personally that he wouldn't be taking part. He didn't, he didn't want to just do it in a phone call or a letter. His wife had just died, and he really didn't feel up to it. And, you know, the gentleman that he was, he felt it was only proper to fly out and tell them face-to-face -face that he wouldn't be uh, doing the film. Uh, but he was persuaded by uh, Christopher Lee that work was the very thing that he needed right now, and he agreed. 
Um, and this happened with a number of Peter Cushing films, you know, shortly after the, the death of his wife, Helen, you know, um, you know, he, he threw himself into his work as a distraction from it. And, you know, of course, you know, he, he got gaunter and gaunter and thinner and thinner, didn't he? Yes. Um, Poor man. But this is one of, I guess, one of those few films where Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee are on the same side as each other. Um, and by all accounts, what Christopher Lee did with, with Mr. Cushing on set was to sit him down for the evening and just reminisce about all the work they'd done together and not mention Peter Cushing's wife once, you know, mm. playing the, the, the psychology, positive psychology trick of, uh, of getting him up for it. So kudos to him for that. Yeah, and I've also got a quote here about... Um, um, it says here, a few people know Peter had to calm Christopher down too once he started complaining about the poor catering and dressing room conditions in that new studio. So they supported each other and they had a chemistry that was wonderful both on and off screen. Okay, and also in Christopher Lee's autobiography, uh, um, he referred to this film and uh, this studio, it was called Studio 70 where they made on. Uh, made it. He says, a horrible little studio in the middle of nowhere. The restaurant was quite unspeakable. The food was the worst I've had anywhere in the world on all the films I have made. I became extremely unwell as a result of eating it. Peter was okay because he just had a, a, a bit of cheese and an apple, but that's what more or less what he's been eating for the last 20 years. Oh, bless. Well, that ex explains why uh, Christopher Lee was eating alone in his carriage, I guess. Um, what else have I got on it? Oh, yeah, we haven't really talked about it. I mean, we were talking about the script there, but the script is very good, you know, and there is, for a horror film, there's an awful lot of humour in it, isn't there? Yep, yep, uh, a few cracking little one-liners that, uh, some of which I think Brits would get, some of which anyone would get. Yeah, I mean, my favourite one is at the top of this show is the introduction to us about uh, monsters. We're British, you know. Yes, yeah, and and my favourite is when the inspector comes up to the doctor, to Peter Cushing at the dinner table, saying he needs him to go and, and see someone, and uh, Peter Cushing says, what are, the, what are his symptoms? And the inspector says, he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> It is, I, I, it is a lovely film, you know, there are many, many reasons for, for, for liking this film, and uh, yes. Uh, what else have I got? Um, we talked about the two train carriages. I've no idea who created that fabulous, you know, ape-man suit, but it is great. You know, when you see it in close-up at the beginning, you know, partially frozen in ice, and then when it's lumbering around, it is good. The special effect guy on the film was... a. Uh, somebody called Pablo Perez, who was a veteran of tons of Sp Spanish genre films. So I'm, I'm guessing that that was him. Yeah, I, I think on the special effects front, uh, I agree with you. The, the alien costume, great for his time. Although, why they decided the inspector's left hand had to be monster-like... I haven't quite hmm. grasped. Um, I think that's a nod. I mean, we've just done a, an, an episode on the fly, hmm. the 50s fly, and uh, maybe it's a nod to that, you know, because, you know, he, he's got the head of a fly, but also his left hand turns into a fly's claw. Yep. So uh, maybe it's a nod to that. It was just a, that's a staple of that's what you're doing. Yeah, field. potentially, potentially. I think um, the external shots of the train, you know, some really particularly when the train stops at Telly Savalas's place, just really obviously a toy. Mm. Um, final scene, spoiler, in case we haven't spoiled this film enough already, but final scene 
as the carriages crash down on the ground, you can blatantly see that the explosion comes from underneath a bit of the set to the right of the train as opposed to the train itself. <laughs> oh, bless it, they do try with it. Um, but, Rick, what's your thoughts on the inspector and the monk in terms of the red eye effect? I, I like it. I mean, they didn't, they didn't have much money, obviously, um, yeah, the contact lenses. Let's talk about the contact lenses. Um, you, so you've got the white ones for the victims, okay? And and, and that's all well and good. Yeah. Um, but I'm, yeah, these red ones, I'm, okay? I'm not sure the red is contact lenses. No, they are. They, what, what, what it is, is you've got uh, like, like an opaque contact lens, okay? Behind that, you've got a light bulb and a battery. Sure. Okay, and, and that's why when you look closely, you can see almost like plasticine joining the edge of the, uh, uh, of the red eye to the skin of the actor. Gotcha. I, I, I struggled with this bit because I, I was watching it and thinking, how have they done this effect? I could see what appeared to be latex around the eyes. But yeah, that's, also that, that, that's, that, that's that... to try and disguise the join, you see. Yeah, sure, but... Equally, I could see whenever you saw the red eyes, you, there was no expression change from the actor. So I wondered at one point whether it was actually a a, 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 a latex mask or a bust of the actor's head. No, what it is, is um, it's, it's what I say, it's a light bulb beyond these like opaque red uh, things, uh, contact lenses. The actor couldn't see anything, okay? That's definitely the actor wearing them. They couldn't see a thing. So what they did was they rehearsed and re rehearsed and rehearsed the scene without the red eyes on. Then gotcha. they put the red eyes on, put the latex round to disguise the join, and then the person is completely blind and then would do the scene, pacing it out as they did in the rehearsals. <laughs> so it wasn't a mask or anything. That was people wearing a light bulb <laughs> on top of their own eye with a contact lens over the top. And all the contact lenses, the white ones and the red ones, were made by a company called Cotet Optica, who are still in business in Madrid to this oh, day. Oh, fantastic. I don't know if they've got a plaque in there saying, you know, contact lenses supplied for Horror Express. I guess that's not a good selling point if you, you know, if you contact lens advert, you see red <laughs> or white, white ones with blood coming out of the eyeballs. That's not a good idea. But so well in Camden. Um, yeah, <laughs> but equally, as, as you say, this this is potentially a nod to uh, who goes there. You do wonder if if Terminator kind of uh, James Cameron had seen this film for the for the Red Eye of Terminator, and they could just say, well, it was just the Red Eye. But you can't watch yeah. this film without thinking Terminator at that point, can you? It's something else we haven't really spoken about. I mean, the photography of this film is very good, and the black is very black. And when you've got, like, you know, a, a, a possessed person or the ape creature and lit solely by its eye, basically, it really um, adds to the film. Yeah, yeah. Um, very vivid colours. I think that works really well. Musical score largely works well a bit spaghetti westerny in places well it's the whistle isn't it it's the whistle <laughs> of the porter what i don't like about it is did you notice that the the theme actually is in the film before you hear the porter whistling it it would have been better if that music didn't come in until after you've already heard it from the porter yeah definitely definitely it creates it from that moment i'm gonna i'm gonna put it on this uh, episode you'll hear you Everyone will hear what we're talking about about the whistle and how they adapted it for the theme. Yeah, definitely got to be got to be your closing theme music. I I just think some of the acting lets this film down, and not by the the three top names. I think Telly Savalas is 
is just in his pomp in this. Um, given oh, that yeah. it, you know he's still a year away from Kojak at this point, so um, yeah. he'd certainly been in a number of films, but wasn't a household name. I, I loved his bit, but some of the stuff like when the soldiers required to break open the chain uh, that holds the crate together. And it's such a limp-wristed little meh swing of the axe yeah. that breaks this chain open. And you think, you really could have given that a good whack. Come on, mate. Yeah, uh, I, I don't think he's too convincing the engineer, you know, with his wig and his fake moustache. <laughs> I don't buy it for one second that he is actually a structural engineer. No, no, absolutely, absolutely. No, so that's it. I, I, that's it. I think we're just about done. We've got to rate it now then, Kevin. Yeah, just one, one other point. Sorry, bro, behind the scenes. The guy yeah. that played the inspector... Um, actually died uh, whilst recuperating from the exertions of making this film. Really? Now that takes method acting to a whole new level, yeah. Went to Marbella, somewhere like that. What did he die of? What, did, what was he recuperating from? Was it something to do with his eyes or something? No, recuperating from the filming of this film. Oh, okay. It's on the internet, it must be true. All right, then, rating, Kevin, what do you give it? And, and, and this is one of the, these odd ones where you've got to rate it now, but you're also looking upon it as how you thought of it when you first saw it. Yeah, well, key things in my mind, 1971-72, so let's bear that in mind. 300 grand budget, bear that in mind. I think many of the effects are really good, but the bad is really bad. So overall, I'm going to give it 4 out of 10, bro. Okay, all right. Well, I didn't think you were going to go that low. Well, I gave it a six. Okay. Because, you know, I... Yeah, it, it's cheap. A, a lot of it is cheap, but it's brilliantly effective. You know, it's it's moody and it's effective and it does its job. So um, so I put it one point above average. So I gave it a six, you give it a four. That gives it a five, which is average. And I think, again, for a film of that budget for when it's made, five out of ten in the 21st century is not a bad score at all. That's an excellent way of summing that up. Thank you, Kevin. All right. Okay. Well, happy Halloween, everybody. Happy Halloween. Yeah. Um, next week, we're not um, doing a horror one. We're going back into science fiction. So uh, back to sci-fi next week. And uh, yeah, see you all next time. Bye-bye. Give us a whistle. <laughs> see you, Kevin. Bye-bye. <laughs> Cheers, bro.